Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Aquadox, the podcast that keeps you up to date on all things aquatic medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Greenfield-Feig. On this week's episode, I have the privilege of speaking with Dr. John Griffun, Associate Veterinarian at the Fort Worth Zoo. Today's episode has two different topics we'll be focusing on. The first part, we'll be talking about John's research with Japanese spider crabs. The second half, we transition to a discussion about mental health in the field of zoo and aquatic medicine. It's an important topic, but can be an intense discussion, so I wanted to make all of our listeners aware of what this episode includes. We hope you'll stick around, but if it's not for you, we'll catch you next time on Aquadox. So without further ado, hi John, welcome to Aquadox. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. I am really excited to hear about some of your research today on Japanese spider crabs and then get into the details of the study that you did for the AAZV, the American Association of Zoo Veterinarians Conference about well-being. But before we jump into all of that, can you tell our listeners a story about how you got to where you are today? Sure. Depends on how far back you want to go. My parents love to tell this story about how when I was in kindergarten, which obviously I have no memory of, I felt very passionate about making sure people understood the difference between turtles and tortoises. So I think it started pretty early. I'm a lifer. I'm definitely someone who always wanted to be a veterinarian, honestly, before I even knew what that meant. And then the more that I learned, the more I got excited about it. My passion for zoo and aquarium medicine started really in high school. I started volunteering at the Binder Park Zoo in Michigan. I did overnight camps with scout groups, and it was so much fun. It's still one of my favorite jobs I've ever had. We got to make bonfires and talk about animals. And and that really sparked seeing that you could practice medicine and and be involved in conservation and getting people excited about saving these species. Such amazing stories. And as a lifetime Girl Scout, I remember in sixth grade, we did a sleepover at SeaWorld and we got to sleep in the little tunnel in the shark encounter. And that's still honestly probably the best place I've ever had a sleepover. Hard to beat that. It is. It's so hard to beat. It was so much fun. I would honestly probably go back and do it again. I mean, I would too, <laughs> but I feel like, yeah, you, know, you might sleep in your office some nights. <laughs> I do. I do sometimes sleep in the office. It's much less fun. <laughs> you know, since this is a podcast, obviously those of you listening aren't able to tell, but since we started this with a story about talking about the differences between turtles and tortoises, what you can't appreciate right now is John is actually wearing a turtle rescue team t-shirt. So clearly we haven't changed much since kindergarten. Nope. We're still strong on the turtle game. But since you mentioned it, do you want to go ahead and share for our listeners what are some of the main distinctions between a turtle and a tortoise? Absolutely. As you know, I feel passionate about this for a long time. A lot of people think about turtles and associate them with water, which is almost true to capture all of the turtles with the exception of some like the box turtles. And so really breaking it down by diet can be more helpful. So turtles typically are omnivores. They have a plant component to their diet as well as something else. It may be carrion or scavenging, or it may be insects or some of the larger turtles eat small rodents and things like that. Whereas tortoises, typically are herbivorous. They only eat plants. Occasionally they'll pick up something else, but it's not a big part of their diet. And that kind of gets away from the distinction of the flippers and the stompy feet, which a lot of people think about because box turtles also have the cute little stompy feet, but they are turtles, not tortoises. And there's a lot more details, but we won't take up the whole podcast talking about them. 
No, we're supposed to be talking about crabs today. We are. <laughs> but I that you not tell us the difference there. Those were great descriptions. So thank you very much for helping us through that. Anytime. So let's talk about this research that you recently published. The paper is titled Baseline Hematologic and Biochemical Values and Correlations to Environmental Parameters in Managed Japanese Spider Crabs. So Japanese spider crabs aren't something that most people are thinking about first thing they see when they go to an aquarium or something like that. So what drew you to work with them? Yeah, that's a great question. They are becoming more popular in public aquaria. And I would say in general, invertebrates, there's a huge gap in our knowledge as far as even baseline diagnostics. So this study was the brainchild of myself and my mentors at Mystic Aquarium. And what can we do realistically with an aquarium population that could have a larger impact on Japanese spider crabs as they're becoming more popular when people are having them in more and more aquarium collections. And as far as we could tell, no one had done it, which is always exciting and also typically means a lot of work to try to figure out how you even go about doing it. So we based it on what we know about other crustaceans, predominantly crabs, and there have been some hemolymph studies. So we use those as a baseline and then scaled it up because Japanese spider crabs are huge and awesome. So what can you tell us about how amazing these animals are? Yeah, Japanese spider crabs are phenomenal animals. They live in really deep, really cold waters around Japan, up to 600 meters deep. So about 2000 feet deep, which is very deep. They typically like 50 degree water, which is very cold if you've ever done a polar plunge. Japanese spider crabs have the longest arm span, so tip of claw to tip of claw of any known arthropod. It can be up to 12 feet which is insane. And they are the second heaviest arthropod after the American lobster, which gets to 44 pounds. Japanese spider crabs have been up to 42 pounds, which is a lot of crab. Their carapace, so the main part of the crab, can be over a foot long. They can be 16 inches. I mean, they're just massive creatures. They lay 1.5 million eggs at a time. And then their first larval stage only lasts 15 minutes. They hatch and they're just ready to metamorph right away at 15 minutes and they enter their first stage. They go through four of those before they become recognizable crabs. They're just fascinating animals. There's something special about crabs and they have hemolymph. So can you describe that for our listeners? Yeah, hemolymph is essentially blood for crabs, but it's a little bit different. So our blood, we have a liquid component and then there are cells in the blood. And similarly, there's a liquid component to hemolymph and there are cells in the hemolymph, but there are no red blood cells. They don't have hemoglobin, which is what carries oxygen around for vertebrates. So instead they have hemocyanin, which is actually a copper-based molecule that carries the oxygen and it gives the hemolymph kind of a blue purple color. It's actually really pretty. It actually is quite pretty. That first time you pull it out, you're drawing your syringe back and you see that blue color. It's really something. Yeah. And it varies by species. So the horseshoe crab has the most beautiful hemolymph probably in the world. It's that really bright blue. And then the Japanese spider crabs are more of like a subtle blue lavender. It has kind of a purple hue. It's a subtle beauty. A subtle beauty. Love that. So this study is something that a lot of people try to do. I'm actually trying to work on a baseline hematologic study in a species of fish right now. So as you're developing this type of study and you're focusing on reference intervals, what are some of the important things to consider in the planning process? 
Yeah, that's a great question. To start even developing reference intervals in zoo and aquarium species is nearly impossible to do it to the T how they do it in human medicine. For instance, typically you need at least 30 animals, but ideally it would be well over 100, 120 animals in the study. Sometimes there aren't 120 of a species in the country. So it's impossible to get those numbers. And then to develop true reference intervals, you need to have healthy animals that are ideally all in the same conditions to be able to compare them and develop those true ranges. So that's why we did baseline. And it's a more realistic way to get this information on zoo and aquarium species, where we can't necessarily control exactly how many male and female crabs. We can't control exactly the water temperature at each aquarium. But we're trying to get a general picture of what's going on in the crabs under managed care in the U.S. So things to think about, are you including males and females? Are they well represented? Is there a difference between juveniles and adults? And crabs, that gets really complicated because they have multiple stages that they morph through. So obviously we're looking at their final adult phase in this study. For invertebrates, you have to look at things like temperature and salinity and other environmental parameters. So there's a lot that can change how the hemolymph parameters interact in the body. Um, and we're only learning more and more about how these change in reptiles and fish and invertebrates. And so as you were doing the study, was there anything surprising that came up? Yeah, perhaps not a surprise, but good to know is that they have the same three cell types in their hemolymph that they found in other crabs. So they have cells with a lot of granules that we call granulocytes. And then they have some cells with fewer granules that we call semi-granulocytes. And then they have cells with no granules, which can either be agranular cells or we call them hyaline cells. And so the same basic types were there. And we actually did see that certain types of cells changed when they had disease on their exoskeleton. We could see that certain cell types were higher. Our numbers weren't quite high enough to show the exact correlation of they have this sign, their cells do this, but it's very promising for future research that there is a response from the hemocytes when they have something else going on in their system, which is the goal of the study is to be able to have a working diagnostic for these animals as far as diagnosing, treating, and then monitoring disease. And that was just talking about the cellular component and then we looked at the chemical component as well. And we saw some changes, but it's hard because crustaceans have an open circulatory system. So their hemolymph isn't contained within vessels. And we showed that the external factors such as calcium in the water are related to the calcium in the hemolymph. So as the calcium in the water decreases, we would expect the calcium in the hemolymph to decrease. So what you're saying is that understanding and knowing your water quality parameters are actually really important in being able to interpret your blood result readings then for these guys. Exactly. Water quality is super important for these guys. There's such a direct relationship between the water they're in and their health and their hemolymph and things like molting and things that require a lot of calcium. We're seeing that calcium in the water should correlate with the calcium in the crab. Well, thank you for the description and teaching us about the Japanese spider crabs today. I want to take this time to transition to some other work that you've done that I value and is very important, which is about well-being in the veterinary space. So I know you gave a presentation at last year's AAZV conference. So can you give us an overview of what the presentation was about and what was your impetus for giving this presentation? 
Yeah, I always like to start conversations about well-being and mental health to point out that I am a clinical veterinarian. That is my training. I am not a social worker. I'm not a psychologist. So take what I'm saying with a grain of salt. My goal is not to diagnose and treat, but instead to bring awareness to what's happening in the profession. So the impetus for this study is twofold. I think some of it is organic. There's been a lot of conversation. Anyone that is involved in the veterinary community knows that mental health crisis is a huge topic right now and something that has to be addressed. And to that point, there have been a couple of studies, including one with the AVMA, the Merck Animal Health Veterinary Wellbeing Study. Now there's multiple phases of that study. And that was the framework that we wanted to use. But looking at veterinarians and what we coined non-traditional species work. And part of this was because a lot of the well-being focuses on burnout and mental health distress from working with clients and patients in a private practice setting, which absolutely is the majority of veterinarians. It's incredibly important that that is what the AVMA is focused on. But we also know that zoo and aquarium veterinarians face very different challenges on a day-to-day basis. We still have clients, but they're keepers and curators and people that we work with really closely. And we work with the same people day to day. So it's a very different relationship than with a client that comes in off the street. And our patients are different. They can be a lot bigger. They can be a lot smaller. Sometimes we can't get hands on them. Sometimes there's only three left in the country. Some of these critically endangered species that we're working with. And how does that impact mental health of veterinarians? So that was why we wanted to start it. And then we took the framework for some of the other studies and we adapted it a little bit. We asked for people in private practice working with exotic pets and people working in laboratory animal medicine, but the vast majority of respondents worked in zoos, aquariums, or wildlife centers. And then the study looked at a few different validated scales to assess well-being, and these were ones that were used in the AVMA study. So a distress scale, a satisfaction with life scale, and that is just so that we can compare apples to apples, because we really want to use a validated scale to be able to say, yes, this is different, or this is the same as the rest of the profession. And then we added in some questions that we thought were appropriate for the profession. A pretty big component of it was how the COVID pandemic played into stress at work and how that changed things. A lot of people's facilities were closed, some for a couple months, some for a year. And how did that impact their mental health? So we asked them, think about before the COVID pandemic, think about after, do you think this has changed? What's changed? How is your job harder now? that the pandemic is not over, but we're figuring out how to work with it on a day-to-day basis. What's changed in the long run? So we don't anticipate this will be the only time that we ask these questions. We'd like to see this serially over time to see how's the pandemic impacting it, how are other current events changing it, and also hopefully how are interventions to address some of these things impacting mental health long-term in the profession. It's such an important topic, and it's a hard topic to talk about, to present on, to even just have a a podcast right now, but it's so important, which is why we needed to have you on to just at least share this with our listeners. So there's lots of takeaways from this study, and we're not going to have time to cover all of them, but what was one of the most important results that you think people should know about? 
Yeah, that's a great question. One of the biggest takeaways for me and something I noticed was very impactful for the people in attendance at the conference was when we talked about burnout scores. So this is a comprehensive score based on a number of questions, and then it kind of comes down to a single score that you can compare. And it's divided into low burnout, medium burnout, and high burnout. And the mean score for people filling out this survey, so predominantly zoo and aquarium veterinarians, was 3.95. The AVMA mean score for veterinarians in general was 3.1, almost a full point higher than veterinarians in private practice. Again, the AVMA study isn't just private practice, but the vast majority of respondents are. So that is really significant that we are that more burnt out. And I think there's a lot that plays into that. There's a lot of responsibility. There's a lot of expectations beyond clinical medicine, which is great. Veterinarians have earned that responsibility, but making sure that there is enough time to do all of those is really hard. Instead, we do full clinics and then we take on a bunch of other responsibilities and then it's no wonder that we burn out so quickly. And then if we compare this to human physicians, their mean burnout score was 2.24. And we know how significant burnout is in the human medical profession. That is not a new concept. It's something that is trying to be addressed by that profession. And we're talking about the AVMA scores almost a full point above that. And then zoo and aquarium professionals are another full point above that. So it's certainly something that needs to be addressed. Yeah, those are definitely scary numbers. And I know that you'd also shown some graphics about feeling overwhelmed or experienced periods of distress. And so it's a shared experience that a lot of people are feeling overwhelmed and, and having this distress. Absolutely. Yep. And feeling those periods of disinterest and depression. And again, we're not here to diagnose, so we didn't get into the clinical definition of depression. But periods of disinterest and depression are what lead to long-term mental health illness. So these are absolute warnings that there is something going on that we have got to address if we want this profession to last. And I know we all do. We spend so much time and money and energy getting here. We want the profession to succeed. We want this to continue in something that is able to persist over time. And I don't know that we can do that if nothing changes right now. And how did COVID-19 impact those values? That is a great question. The general response was overwhelmingly, yes, the COVID pandemic resulted in more stress. Some of the things that were most affected, if we look at personal aspects, it was personal relationships, dealing with parents. A lot of us, our parents may be older, so we're worried about them getting ill. We may be not close to them, as we know in the zoo and aquarium world, tend to move all over the place, follow the jobs, and then you get distant from family. All of the personal aspects were higher or were deemed to be impacted. Work relationships, unexpected life events, current events, caregiving demands. And then looking at work in COVID impacts, again, 70% of people said, yes, COVID impacted my amount of stress at work. The vast majority of responses were work-life balance. People found it very challenging to balance the work commitments and the life commitments. And then again, working relationships, particularly with support staff were strained. I think that's because a lot of people were just strained in general. And so that put a lot on the whole team. Yeah, and hopefully knock on a lot of wood out there that we won't experience something like that again in the near future, but it just demonstrates that there are environmental situations that can exacerbate underlying issues. And one of the things that I thought was interesting that kind of ties into that was the comment about being comfortable saying no to obligations if needed. 
And I just personally felt that was really interesting for you to include because I know, speaking from the I perspective here, I have a hard time saying no when I'm given an opportunity or someone asks me to do something. I think that comes from having been in a student perspective, you know, still trying to get a job in this field and moving forward. But I don't know if it's comforting or terrifying that that feeling just seems to persist no matter where you are in this field. Yes, is the short answer. It is both comforting and terrifying. And that's why we included it. That was one of those questions that came about organically as we were developing the study with my co-investigators. And it's something that we've seen in the profession that people have a really hard time saying no to things. And there's a lot involved in this. And again, it's different for everyone. So I hesitate to make generalizations. But to get into the zoo and aquarium profession, a lot of the times it's relying on you saying yes to opportunities all the time. And there is something to be said for doing that. And I think it is really important to critically evaluate opportunities and take advantage of things, even if they aren't necessarily what you perfectly imagined or what your plan was. But what that leads to then is this ingrained personal philosophy where you have to take every opportunity that arises. And there is just no possible way to do that. And I think we have to understand, and I'm absolutely guilty of this. I'm terrible at this. Probably another reason we included the question, but you have to evaluate what's being asked of you and say, can I do what this requires of me? And can I give it what it needs in time and resources? Or would it be better if someone else could do this? It goes both ways because sometimes then it feels like whatever that was isn't going to happen if I don't do it. So then you take it on and then you end up being unable to fulfill multiple things that you've said yes to because you just keep adding things on. So it's this mentality that I have to take every opportunity that arises. I have to do every single externship. I have to go to every single place. When I go on vacation, I have got to go visit a zoo or an aquarium. You don't. You don't have to. You absolutely can if it is relaxing for you. I still visit zoos and aquariums on vacation, but it's relaxing or I'm going to say hi to someone that I've developed a professional relationship with from conferences or something, but it's not work. So it's really hard. And for zoo and aquarium professionals, just so hard because we've devoted so much to get here and we're really passionate about what we do. And the passion is what drives us what keeps us in the profession. It's super important. The problem is not the passion, but then the passion leads us astray. And we have kind of worked ourselves into a corner now. It's really hard to say no. And yeah, it's comforting to know that everyone feels that way, but that is not good for our burnout scores long-term. I know there's some other aspects of the study that you wanted to share with our listeners. So were there any other results that you wanted to make sure that people knew about? Of course. There's some things to learn from each of the topics that we discussed in the study, and we do hope to publish this so that everyone can see it. But it's challenging because it is a very sensitive topic. Some other things that were really positive was that in general, the majority of people felt like they were supported by their colleagues. They felt like they were treated with respect. They felt like their supervisors cared about their well-being. That one was a little split, but it tended positive, which I don't know that I was surprised by, but I was 
comforted to know that people are feeling respected in their positions. Perhaps less surprising, no matter where you are in your career, imposter syndrome follows you. I feel like an imposter often. We even added the clarifier and still that one trended as a majority. Interestingly, 40% of people said that they were satisfied with their life as is. Almost 16% said they were extremely satisfied, 14% slightly satisfied. Really only 25% of people were dissatisfied or slightly satisfied. And I think this is a really interesting juxtaposition to the rest of the data is that we have developed a satisfaction. And I think a lot of this is because we find what we do really rewarding. It's not a problem per se, but I do think that we have to refocus and realize that, yes, we should be satisfied with what we're doing and realizing that we're having a really important impact. But we can't let that blind us to the other things that we need to work on as a profession to make sure that people aren't getting burnt out, that we can do this for a full career, right? We don't want people to leave this profession mid-career because they can't do it anymore. We're losing so much talent in the zoo and aquarium profession when we allow that to happen. One of the biggest shocks for the crowd was when we talked about whether or not you would recommend a career in zoo and aquatic medicine. And only 38% of people were like, yes, absolutely, I would. And that compares to 47% in the AVMA study, which was like shocking in the AVMA study. They were like less than half of the profession would recommend this. And then we're even lower than that. 32% of people were just like, no, I absolutely would not recommend it. And that is a problem for the future of the profession. That's what we have to fix. And it's going to be a hard ask. It's going to require vulnerability and learning how to be uncomfortable, learning how to advocate for ourselves and the animals that we take care of. It's not going to be an overnight fix. It's going to be something that we have to be very intentional about. And it's super important that we're talking about this with you because you're the future of the profession, right? You're class, the class graduating right now, and this will be true for every class after you, that's how change is going to happen. So we need to be having these conversations and we need to be open to change. Yeah. When I saw that value, I also found it absolutely shocking, but also not that surprising given how many people I talk to who tell me to get out while I still can. But I agree, it's really up to us, which is why I wanted to bring you on so people could hear about how our community is doing today and what we can do to continue to improve it in the future. Absolutely. Yeah, we can't make improvements, right, if we don't know where we are. So that was the purpose of the study. Where are we? Let's get a baseline. Let's figure out where we are. Let's be honest and vulnerable in our responses. And it's not doom and gloom. Like, yeah, there are some sobering data in this. We didn't even get into some of the other things like self-harm and suicide ideation, but like there are some sobering data in here. But I don't think it's doom and gloom. I think it is absolutely, we have a tremendous amount of talented and creative and passionate people in the profession and we can make it better. But again, we have to be intentional about what we're doing. We have not covered anything this deep before on the podcast. It's important information, and I think it needs to get out there. It was super well received at the conference. I didn't expect it to be poorly received, but I expected more indifference than there was. And people were like, thank you for starting the conversation. Yeah. That is all we're doing. We are just starting the conversation because if we don't talk about it, how are we going to fix it? Yeah. We've got to be vulnerable with each other. We have got to start talking about it and make it okay to talk about like, I'm burnt out. I can't do this today. Can you help? Sometimes the answer is yes. And sometimes the answer is no. And that's the problem. You have to be able to say no to. Yeah, I'm excited that you want to talk about it. I mean, 
truly though, your generation makes me sound much older than I am, but even looking at externs and people since I've graduated, people are so much more willing to be open about mental health discussions. Truly, I think your generation is going to make a huge impact on the profession. Don't let people beat that out of you. (laughs) I will do my best. Well, John, thank you for all of that information. It's really important for our student listeners to hear. And we've covered some important but difficult topics on today's episode. So thank you again for being here today on Aquadox. Thank you for having me. And that's going to do it for this week's episode of Aquadox. I'd like to thank Dr. John Griffune for being on the show this week, as well as all of you, our wonderful listeners, for tuning in. Thank you to our sponsors, AAFE, the American Association of Fish Veterinarians, WAVMA, the World Aquatic Veterinary Medical Association, and the Cornell Wildlife Health Center for their continued support of Aquadox. As always, check out our Facebook and Instagram to stay up to date on the latest Aquadox news. And if you've got an extra moment, please like and follow us on Apple and Spotify and leave a review. I'm Michelle Greenfield-Feig, and we'll see you next time here on Aquadox.